Well, good morning. If you are with the children's ministry, you are excused. There's going to be some teachers in the back. And for the rest of us, turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and someone will bring you a Bible. It would be great if you had your Bible open because we're going to look at seven chapters today. And they are tedious. There's a lot of details. And we are going to paraphrase most of it, okay? Can I get an amen? So we're going to look at Exodus 25 all the way to Exodus 31. Well, uh, I love Christmas, as many of you do. But uh, I love Christmas commercials. And in my opinion, the cheesier the, the Christmas commercial, the better, all right? And one of my favorite Christmas commercials is a Coca-Cola commercial, all right? And so it's a commercial about this uh, father who's sitting there, right? He's drinking a Coca-Cola, and he's talking about his son. And his son was deployed, and so he hadn't seen his son for a while. And so he's talking about his son, about how much he misses his son. And then you hear the knock on the door, right? Right? Cue the tears. He opens it up, holding his Coca-Cola, and there's his son, Right? Now, I love that commercial, and one of the reasons why I love that commercial is that I think it taps into something deep within us, a a sort of human longing. You see, Christmas, it's about gifts, but, but we really do know that the greatest gift isn't just a present. The greatest gift is presence, right? To be with someone that maybe you haven't seen for a while, that maybe you miss, that really is one of the greatest gifts of Christmas, is just spending time with your friends and your family and your loved ones. I mean, isn't that what Christmas is all about? Christmas is about God being with us, right? Emmanuel, God with us. Well, that whole idea of God being with us, it it doesn't start in the Gospels, right? It doesn't just start with Jesus coming to dwell with humanity. Actually, that theme, it starts way back in the Bible. That, That whole idea of God dwelling with humanity starts in the first few pages of the Bible. We have this whole idea of the garden. And the garden is a sanctuary. It's a sanctuary where God dwells with humanity, right? They're walking with each other. And that's what makes the garden so beautiful. Not not the trees, not the animals, not all the sights and sounds. That's beautiful. But what really makes the garden a sanctuary is that God dwelt with humanity. But then you get to Genesis 3, and it all breaks down, doesn't it? And sin enters the story, brokenness, And God no longer can dwell with sinful humanity. God in his holiness and humanity and their sinfulness, well, they can't dwell with one another. And so Adam and Eve are cast out of Eden, east of Eden. And then God puts two cherubim to guard Eden with flaming swords, right? These cherubim, they're not the sort of fluffy, fat angels you see at a Hallmark store, right? These are terrifying Warrior angels with flaming swords guarding Eden such that, right, the the sort of imagery is pretty simple. 
such that if Adam and Eve or any humanity in their sin tried to get back into Eden, they'd have to go under the sword. And yet, God doesn't give up on humanity. Far from that, God hatches a plan. He's got a plan, and his plan is that he is going to dwell with his people. And as Ben alluded, Ben kind of stole my thing. That's what our text is all about this morning, right? God dwells with his people. That's what the tabernacle is all about. God's provision of dwelling with his people. So, so, so really, when you think about the book of Exodus, we've been, we've been going through the book of Exodus. They've been rescued from slavery in Egypt. And you should be asking, okay, so they're rescued, but rescued to what purpose? To what end? For what, what sort of objective was their rescue? And it's for this simple point. God's people are rescued to dwell with God, to be in his presence, to have intimacy with God. But how? How is God going to do that? How is God in his holiness going to dwell with his people? That is what Exodus chapter 25 through 31 is all about. God's provision for his sinful people that they can have access to his presence. The whole idea is a God is going to create a holy place so that his holy presence can be with his holy people. So the big idea is this, and it should be on the screen behind me. God makes a way to dwell with his people in his presence. And we're going to kind of divide up this text in two ways. We're first going to look at this holy place, this this tabernacle, this tent. Then we're going to look at this holy priesthood that God gives to his people. And then thirdly, we're going to look at his holy people. So first, let's look at this holy place, this holy home. Look at chapter 25. I'm going to read the first nine verses. This is sort of an introduction. Verse 1, chapter 25. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they may take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skin, goat skin, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense. Onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breast piece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly how I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, you shall make it. We'll stop there. So there, look at verse 8. Verse 8 is the sort of hermeneutical key that unlocks the entire section of this part in the book of Exodus. God is making a sanctuary in which he is going to dwell with his people. And then if you flip over to chapter 29, at the end of chapter 29, if you go and look at verse um, 42, this whole section is about priests and sacrifice. but, But then we read in verse 42, this same idea. 
It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meetings before the Lord, where I will meet with you. There's this presence dwelling with him. And I'm going to speak to you there. Verse 43. There I'm going to meet with you, with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meetings and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. Verse 45. I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I, the Lord, am their God. That's the purpose of this section. God dwelling with his people. He is creating a means in this section, in this tabernacle, a means of how man in their sin... God in his holiness can actually dwell together in their presence. And so God builds himself a home. God builds himself a a tabernacle, a tent in which he's going to speak to them. He's going to give them the exact blueprints for this and the exact interior decorating. Right? That's what chapter 25, 26, 27, and chapter 30 is all about. It's God's blueprint for this tent where God's going to dwell and meet with his people. So you can sort of think of this as HGTV, okay? Right? This is fixer-upper, right? I am Chip Gaines in this sort of... And so I'm going to sort of give you a tour of the blueprints of this tabernacle where God and man are going to meet. All right? So let's, let's look at this structure. This whole structure... You could think of it as three parts, okay? In descending holiness, okay? So, so, so the deeper you get in, the closer you get to God, the more restrictive it is. And so you've got the outer court. You've got then this holy place. And then in the holy place, you've got a, a perfect cube. It's 20 by 20 by 20, you know, symbolically representing perfection, holiness. And in that, that holy place is the holy of holies, this perfect cube. And so what we have is, if you just look at chapter 25, and you were just a flip, what's going to go on is we're going to start in the holy of holies, the most holy place, and then we're going to work our way out to then the holy place, and then the outer court, and they're going to work our way back to the holy place. That's sort of the flow of the text, the narrative. So let's look. We're going to start in the holy of holies, Chapter 25, look at verse 10. So verse 10 to 22, we've got the the holy of holies, this this perfect cube. And in it we have one item, the Ark of the Covenant, verse 10. It's made of wood and it's overlaid with gold, the most precious metal there was. And you you can think of this Ark as a box, right? It's, it's a box, and in this box, there's going to be a few things. And they're going to put the two tables of stone in which Moses, when he's up on the mountain, that God told him, that this is the, the covenant, the Mosaic covenant. They're going to put those tablets of stone, this sort of covenant sign. They're going to put it, it's like a marriage license, you could think of it. They're going to put the marriage license in this box, in the ark. And then also, they're going to put Aaron's staff eventually and then a jar of manna from the wilderness. So, so just think of it this way. The, the three things in there symbolically are representing that, that God provides for them, that God leads them, and God speaks to them. 
And then there's going to be a, like most boxes, there's a lid. If you go down to verse 22, it's called the mercy seat. Verse 22 says this, describes it this way, that there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you. So here in the Holy of Holies, you've got the ark, you've got a lid that's called the mercy seat, and there's two cherubim facing inward, not outward, but facing inward as a, as a sense like worshiping. And on this mercy seat is the very presence of God. God's tangible heavenly presence and it's tangibly coming on earth right there on the mercy seat. So, so we call it a seat because God's going to, as it were, sit there. So you could translate it, not just mercy seat, but think of it as a mercy throne. This is the throne of God. This is the, the heavenly throne that meets on earth and God's glory is going to reside there. And this room, as we keep reading, it's veiled, okay? It's veiled by a cherubim embroidered curtain. It's sealed off. And only once a year can the, whole, the, uh, the not chief priest, like the, think of him as the, 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 the best priest, the most set apart priest, the, the holiest priest, right? Only he can once a year go into that very holy of holies. And then the text moves out starting in, in verse 23 of chapter 25. And now we're in the holy place. And in the holy place, there are three kind of furniture items. So we've got the table of bread. That's described in verses 23 through 30. It's made of wood and it also is overlaid with gold. Verse 14 says that there's, there's plates and dishes for incense. There's bowls. And there's the, the bread of presence or also known as the, the showbread that's going to be on that table. Leviticus 14 explains that this bread, it's made of fine flour. It's baked in 12 loaves, representing God's people. It's arranged in two piles, and it's covered with frankincense, and it's served as a memorial food offering to the Lord. So, so, so we've got this table there. And then if you go down to verse 31, we've got a lampstand with seven candles, also made of gold. And then finally, and you can flip over to 30, chapter 30, we have the altar of incense. Right? So this, there's going to be incense flowing in this holy place. And then we move out, and that's what chapter 26 and 27 is. We're moving out now to the outer court. And we have all these design uh, elements, this construction of this outer court and this, this broader tent that's going to go with God's people. So you can think of it as it's, it's a tent, but it's not a building. They can tear it down and take it with them as they go through the wilderness on their kind of pilgrimage to the promised land. And in this outer court, there are two furniture items. We have the bronze altar. That, that, that's where the sacrifices are going to be made. So, so people are going to bring their animals and they're going to bring it to the outer court and they're going to give it to the priests, and the priests are going to sacrifice it on behalf of the people. And then you've got this bronze basin for washing ceremonially. Now, I mean, yeah, I know it's kind of like HGTV, but like, what's the point, right? What's the purpose? What's the significance of this? Like, why is God constructing his home in this way? Well, we, we learn some 
very important theological truths in the manner in which God kind of creates and designs his home, right? Have you ever walked into someone's home or, or seen the, the, the home, maybe how big it is or how small it is or, or what they have in their home? Like you learn something about someone when you go to their home, don't you, right? And we learn many things about God as it relates to the design of this tabernacle, this home where God's going to dwell with his people. And the thing we really learn, you know, as in an ultimate way, is that God is gloriously holy. Or we could put it this way, that God is beautiful, and because he's beautiful, he's terrifying. So just think, think of the principle. The, the principle of the construction of this tabernacle works in concentric circles. Okay, so, so the closer you get to God's presence, the closer you get to the Holy of Holies, the closer you get to the Ark of the Covenant, the holier it becomes, right? The, the more restrictive it becomes and the more intricate the things in there are, right? So the, the, the better and mag- more magnificent and more glorious and the better even the metal that's used, right? So, so, so just let's, let's look at the metal. Let's, let's, I just want to point this out. So, so when you get into the Holy of Holies, that everything is, is overlaid with, you see it there in verse 11 of chapter 25, it's overlaid by pure gold, right? Only the best. And then even just the, 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 uh, the curtains that block off the Holy of Holies, they're embroidered. And then if you move out, you get to the outer court, and, and what's the metal that's used? Bronze. No longer gold. But bronze, do you see that these metals are, are, are trying to communicate something theological to us? Or, or think of the fabric used, right? The, the most intricate fabric is for the holy place in the Holy of Holies. Look there in chapter 26, right? Chapter 21, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You make them with, with a cherubim skillfully worked in them, right? That The length is big. They're intricate, they're detailed, different colors, right? This is a big deal. But then if you go down to verse 7, right, talking about the outer court, you shall make those curtains of goat's hair. Now, I don't know what what that is. I just know that it's not as cool, that's not as precious as the fabric used in the inner sanctuary of this tabernacle. So, So even the fabric used as you work your way out is less precious. Or if you go to chapter 28, and chapter 28 is an entire chapter uh, about what Aaron and the other priests are going to wear, all right? So if you hate fashion, my guess is in your quiet time, you're like glossing over this, okay? This is all about what the priests are going to wear. But, but, but you notice that Aaron's garment, Aaron's garment are amazing. Look at, look at chapter 28, uh, verse 6. And they shall make the fod of gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and, and fine twined linen scarefully worked. It shall have two shoulder pieces attached to its edges so that they may be joined together. It's going to be skillfully woven together and made like it in one piece with gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. I mean, this thing is extravagant. My guess is that some of your study Bibles have a picture of this. I mean, this, this high priest garment is beautiful. But if you flip over to chapter, uh, or to verse 40 of chapter 28, and you talk about just Aaron's sons and his priests, not as cool, all right? 
right? Uh, it, when I grew up, uh, we had clothing, but then we had church clothes. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? So, so we, there's clothing, but then there's church clothing that even only Aaron gets. So even the clothing is teaching us something theologically about God. And even how these sort of furniture items are constructed tell us something, right? You've got this, this language, and I could, you could just read all of them, that there's, there's hoops, and there's rings, and there's poles. And the point is that God created an Old Testament sort of pulley system in which as they move, as they pilgrimage through the wilderness to the promised land, they are going to carry these items and do so on poles and sort of levees such that they don't touch them. So all of these items, all of these, all the fabric, all the details, they're communicating a truth to us. And it's simply this. God's home is communicating symbolically that God is attractive, if we could use that term. God is beautiful, but he's also dangerous. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but beauty is dangerous, right? Have you ever seen someone who's just extremely attractive Okay, you just kind of keep your distance, right? You, you, you do this, okay? You just naturally do this. Or, or, or have you ever walked into a home, like a multi-million dollar home, and you just kind of make fun of it a little bit? Or, you, or you're just like, this is so impressive. You do this because beauty, in one sense, is dangerous. It brings out our insecurities. Or have you ever hung out with someone who's just like really, really moral, right? They're just like, humble and they serve and you're with them and you're like, I just don't want to be around them. You know what I'm talking about? Beauty, we like long for beauty, but but beauty is dangerous because what beauty does, true beauty, when you like walk into a home and you see beauty on display. I mean, I I experience this every time I go to the Bethune's house, okay? I walk into their backyard and it's beautiful and I hate it because it's so beautiful, all right? Because what it does is it reminds me of how ugly my backyard is, right? That's what beauty does. When you see beauty, and we could just name it in so many different forms, it just reminds you of how ugly we are, right? It's why when you go to a, the Met Gala, if you go to any type of gallery and you see beautiful paintings, they, they rope it off. You can't get close to beauty. It's dangerous. You don't want to touch it. You're supposed to stay at a distance, You see, when you really get close to beauty, it's sort of dangerous because it brings out our insecurities. It brings out our ugliness, our sin. When we come in contact with beauty, it's like coming in contact with a mirror and we realize, I'm not that beautiful. And in many ways, that is one of the big theological truths that God is kind of communicating in the construction of the tabernacle. It's that God is beautiful. And all of the intricacies, all the gold, all of the elements is all communicating that God is so beautiful that he's dangerous because they are not. Five times in this section, from chapter 25 to 31, the idea of death comes up. And the point is, you can't get too close to God in his beautiful holiness or you die. You, you can't casually deal with God or you'll die. 
And so the tabernacle is communicating this. It's communicating how beautiful God is. But it's also a reminder of how sinful humanity is and how much they needed God. So what do you do? What do you do in light of God's beauty, his holiness, his glory that's communicated over and over again? This, this, this tabernacle, this tent, it's going to be at the center of the community. They're all going to camp around it. And this tabernacle is going to be in the middle in such a way that they can't get around it. They can't forget that God is holy, that God is beautiful. It's just always on their minds. So what do you do in the midst of that? What do you do in light of that? Well, that's what chapter 28 and 29 is all about. God is holy. His place is holy, but they need a holy priesthood. So second, go to chapter 28. So chapter 28 is all about, like I said earlier, it's all about the priest's garment. And then chapter 29 is all about the priestly ministry. It's actually a ordination service, right? It's, it's about consecrating or making the priests holy, setting them aside for the work in this tabernacle. So let's look at briefly these priests and their garments, all right? And I'm not going to read all of it, but it is elaborate. It is detailed. And the whole idea is that this holy place, in order to minister in this holy place, the priests need to be symbolically robed in holiness. Even their linen, their like undergarments need to be set apart and holy. But, but, but not only are these outfits elaborate and beautiful, they also communicate something theological and purposeful. Look down in verse 9. Of chapter 28. Verse 9 says this You shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on one stone, and the names of the remaining six on the other stone, in the order of their birth. Then go down to verse 12. And you shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the Afad as the stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And then if you go down to verse 15, you've got this breast piece, this, this chest. And on it are going to be four, roads of, uh, four rows of stones. And on each stone of various jewels are going to be written the 12 tribes of Israel on the high priest's heart. So, so what this is telling us is that the high priest has the names of God's people, you know, representative in the 12 tribes on his shoulder and on his heart. Meaning that as the priest does his work, he's not just doing the work for himself. He is doing it representatively for all of God's people. He represents all of God's people. So his sacrifices, his call for their forgiveness, his work weekly and yearly and daily, all of that work, it's not just for him. He is representing them. He stands for them. He is standing before God and God's people. That is what the priestly ministry is all about. And then if you flip over to chapter 29, you see that the priests and their work, they're going to be set apart for this work, right? They're going to do this day and night. I mean, their entire lives are going to revolve around doing the work of the ministry there in the tabernacle. And in chapter 29, you can really think of it as an ordination service. And if you go to verse 26, 31, 35, that's the very language. 
they're being ordained into the ministry. And in order to be ordained into the ministry, they're going to do so by way of sacrifices. So, so there's going to be a sacrifice necessary for Aaron and his sons and the future priests in order to consecrate them, make them holy so that they can work in the tabernacle. And we see three sacrifices in verse 10, 15, and 19. Now, it's gruesome what happens in this sacrifice. So, so, so an animal is sacrificed, and then blood is placed in three places, on the priest's ear, thumb, and toe. Now, that's weird, right? You just read that, and you're like, I don't, why is that? Well, I actually think it's, it's quite simply. It's quite simple, right? It's, it's communicating something, right? It's communicating that the priest and all of the priests, the entirety of that man, that priest, is dedicated to the Lord, right? From the head to the hands to the feet, the totality of the priest is set apart for their holy work in the tabernacle. But, but, but as we're going through why all of a sudden interrupt all these kind of uh, all these elements and furniture? Why interrupt with this whole idea of priests, their garments, and their work? Right? Because then in chapter thirty we go back into the furniture and go back to the construction of God's holy place, His tabernacle. So wh- why is it all interrupted? Well, in many ways, it's to communicate a, re- a simple truth and the reality that sacrifice and priests and their ministry of sacrificing on behalf of God's people, it's going to play a major role in God's people's relationship with God. At the sort of center of God's relationship to his people, at the center of that drama is going to be the idea of sacrifice. Such that whenever people think of this tent, of this tabernacle, they're going to think in terms of being reconciled to God through the priestly work of sacrifice. Now, the, the whole idea of daily, weekly, yearly sacrifices and revolving your entire life around taking your, your, your family animal, the animals were, were not just like, uh, they were goods, they, they were expensive. And so it's like, you know, taking your car and sacrificing it. It was like that. And we're a far ways away from that, right? That, that's... That's weird. I mean, just think about camping around. Think about the smell. Think about all the different elements. We're, we're, we're far from that. We look at it and think, that's just so barbaric. Maybe you even think like, that, that seems so legalistic, right? That God's people had to sacrifice animals in order to be forgiven by God. But I don't think that's how we should think of this. God's people, even in the Old Testament, were people who lived by faith. I mean, just, just put yourself in their shoes, right? For most, nearly the entire people of God, they would never see God. They were not allowed to. They would never literally hear God. They would never be in the holy place. They would never hear um, God. They would never go on the mountain and actually hear God speak this kind of tabernacle into existence with the blueprints that were given to Moses. I mean, there's so much God's people just didn't see. They had to take it on faith. When Moses says, don't touch that or you're going to die. Like they could say, oh, I, need, I need to test that, right? Like a child, when you say, don't touch that oven, it's hot. 
And you're just like, you just have to trust me, child, right? I promise you, it might not even look hot, but if you touch it, it is hot. You're asking your child to just trust you. And so God's people, even here, are a people who are, who are bound together as a faith community. That's what their relationship was all about. God says, you're going to make these sacrifices. And as you make these sacrifices, you are going to be forgiven. But you're going to have to trust me. You're going to have to put your faith in me. This wasn't legalistic religion. This was a religion of faith. And it's similar to ours, isn't it? Very similar to ours. We too are people who live by faith, which doesn't mean that we don't live by, that we're anti-science or it doesn't mean that we're, oh, it just doesn't make sense and we just love that things don't make sense. No, no, no. That's not what that means at all. What it means when we say we live by faith is that we, we say, you know, we've never seen God. We were not there when Jesus lived. But what we're saying is we put our faith in God's provision for our sins to be forgiven in Jesus Christ. We literally say, I believe that story. I believe that truth. I believe that God's provision of salvation is sufficient to pay for my sins. And then when you're living your life as a Christian, you don't just end there and say, okay, now I put my faith in Jesus for salvation and now I'm good. No, all of life is one by faith, right? And so God's word comes to us as well and says, this is how I'm going to order the family. This, this is what, what gender is. This is what sexuality is. Or this is what my attributes are. I am loving. I am good. And then we live our lives and we sometimes experience and go, well, I don't know if God is good. I'm going through this trial. Or I don't know if God is reigning. I, I feel like the world is out of control. Or I, I, I don't know if God loves me because I don't feel like he's loving me right now. And yet you read in the Bible that he says he loves me and that he's in control and he's comforting and he's peaceful and he's gentle. And you think, I too have to live by faith, right? Independent of my feelings, independent of my, what might be going on in my life, I have to say, no, I'm going to continue to live by faith to say, no, God does love me. God is comforting me. Yet God's way of life is best, even if the world would tell me that it will not produce life No, I'm going to, in faith, believe that God's word brings life. There's a lot of similarities between Old Testament religion and New Testament religion, isn't there? And it's all about trusting in God's word, putting our faith in God. Well, lastly, we've looked at a holy place, this holy priesthood that's going to reconcile God's people with uh, with God through the sacrificial system, but let's also look at the, the idea of a holy people. Go to chapter 30. So chapter 30, we're once again in the holy place and we've got the altar of incense. So then we've got this whole idea of a census tax. So there's going to be a census and they're going to figure out who's going to pay what for this construction of this house of God. And we got the bronze basin, anointing oil and incense, And then we got chapter 31. Look at chapter 31, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called the name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur from the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence and knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood to work in every craft. 
And behold, I have anointed with him a hoil of it. Or we can just call him a holy night. How's that? It's Christmas. We'll call him a holy night. The son of Ahishamach of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to him um, all able men and ability that they may make all that I've commanded you. The tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat and, and, that, and all that's on it. And all the furnishings of the tent. The table that is, and the utensils, and the pure lamp, and the utensils, and the altar of incense, and the altar of burnt offerings with the utensils, and the basin, and its stand. And the finely worked garments, holy garments for Aaron, and the priests, and the garments of his sons, and the service of the priests, and the anointing oil, and the fragment, and incense, and the holy place, according to all that I've commanded, they shall do. Right? You get the idea, right? God raises up these two men, gifts them by power of the Spirit, in order to make all of this. Right? Right, God is the chief architect, and here he raises up some foremen to get it done, right? To actually build these things. But just look, if we just kind of summarize these entire chapters, just think of all that God provides, all of his provisions, right? God gives a heavenly blueprint and says, build it exactly how I want it. I don't need, I don't need any ideas, you just do it exactly how I tell you. He gives him a detailed plan, he says, hey, um, you, you don't need to hire an interior decorator. I'm going to tell you exactly what you need to put in this house. He then says, I'm going to give you priests. They're going to represent God's people. They're going to make sacrifices on behalf of you to me. And then I'm going to raise up some men to get it done. Right? This is a bit like my Thanksgiving. I, I went with my, to my brother and sister's house and my parents were there and we just pretty much showed up and all the food was there, right? That's what, like, they're just called to show up. God provides, like, everything for them. Not only that, but just think about the, the things to build it, right? That God says, I, I need you uh, to give this sort of material. I mean, where, where did they get this material? They got it from Egypt. They plundered Egypt, right? So God's saying, hey, you borrowed it from Egypt? Just give it back to me, all right? So it wasn't even theirs. Everything God is doing, God's providing down to the intricate details, everything necessary in order to build this thing. But then you go to verse 12 and something weird happens, right? Like we're in HGTV and then all of a sudden it's Sabbath and now we're in law and order, right? It's like, why in the world all of a sudden are there, there's a conversation about the Sabbath, all right? It sort of doesn't make sense, does it? Well, let me just read a portion of it. Verse 12. This is all about the Sabbath. It's all about resting in God. And the Lord said to Moses, you are to speak to the people of Israel and say, above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. I, the Lord, make you holy. I, the Lord, set you apart. The Sabbath is going to be a sign that God's people are set apart. They are holy. And if they're holy, it means that in one sense, they're going to be able to come in God's presence. Now, you guys, this, this is the part that's really, really cool. So just, just let me geek out for a second, okay? This is... I've been saving this to the end, but this entire thing, it's, it's actually constructed in an amazingly uh, intricate and purposeful way. All right, chapters 25 to 31, 
structured in seven speeches. And Moses is not the one making the speech. It's seven speeches that God gives, right? We see this over and over again. They start with, and the Lord said to Moses. Seven times, the Lord said to Moses. The Lord said to Moses. The Lord said to Moses. God gives seven speeches. When, when was the last time you saw this language of God speaking seven times? Genesis, right? God speaking the universe into existence on seven days. So it's as if God is saying, hey, I spoke creation into existence in seven days. I am now speaking this new Eden into existence. You know, I, I spoke creation, which culminated in, in a place, a garden sanctuary between God and man. Now I am speaking a new Eden, a new sanctuary that God and man can dwell. And then look, just, just go back to chapter 25. Look at this golden lampstand, verse 31. Just, just look at how it's constructed. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work in its bases, its stems, its cups, calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. And there shall be six branches going out of the sides, three branches of the lampstand out of the side of it, and three branches of the lampstand out on the other side of it. Three cups made like almond blossoms with each calyx and flowers on one branch and three cups made like almond blossoms, each with calyx and flower and on other branches. For, for, so for the six branches going out of the lampstand, do you guys see this language? It's, it, it's branches, it's trees, it's garden imagery, right? This is the tree of the garden of knowledge, right? Or the tree, the, the tree of life. And then you, you keep flipping over and you just realize that, that what does God do in order to set aside some people for this work? It says he gives them the spirit. I mean, just like in Genesis 1, right? The spirit hovering over the waters now. The spirit's hovering over men as they build this. T- to get into the cabinet or to get into the tabernacle, you have to go in east. Adam and Eve were cast east. You've got the cherubim. I mean, come on. I mean, like, like this isn't even like... Uh, subtle, right? This is on our nose. This is a, an allusion to Eden. God is restoring an Eden sanctuary for God's people so that God can meet with his people. He's creating a new way in order to do this. And yet as glorious as this is, right? As wonderful as this tabernacle is, right? Although God is revealing himself in the tabernacle, we, we also know that this tabernacle also conceals, doesn't it? And so Eden is restored in a sense. There is a new sanctuary where God and God's people are going to come together, but but it's going to be restrictive, isn't it? Not everyone's going to be able to be in God's presence. And so all of this stokes. It stokes in us a longing for a better tabernacle, doesn't it? A better place where God and his people can meet. Where there won't be access through yearly, weekly, daily priests. And that really is what Hebrews chapter 8 is all about. Now, Ben read it, so I'm not going to read all of it. But chapter um, 8 of Hebrews is an uh, explanation of what this tabernacle in Exodus we're looking at, what it points to, what, what it kind of typologically finds its fulfillment in. And the language that 
he uses if you flip over to Hebrews 8. The language is the idea of shadows, copy, that the tabernacle was a copy of heaven for earth, but it was pointing to a greater tabernacle. And that tabernacle is Jesus Christ, right? Right? In, in, in the Gospel of John, Jesus comes on earth, right? We celebrate it on Christmas, and it literally says, and he come and he dwelt among us, or he tabernacled among us. That's what Jesus was. He was God with us. He is the sanctuary where God and his holiness and man and their sinfulness meet through the priestly work of Jesus Christ. It's why Jesus, when he lived, right, he was perfectly holy. He was fully God, fully man. And yet he would touch people in his holiness as if to, in one sense, also give them holiness, just like the tent, right? God would touch them with holiness and then they were set aside. So God, or so Jesus, as he lived his life in holiness, as he was set aside for the work of the ministry, his holiness just pervaded out of him to the world. And then you get this whole idea of sacrifice. That the high priest, there's this unending drama. They would weekly and nightly and daily and yearly make all these sacrifices because the sins were never fully and finally and completely atoned for. But not Christ. In Christ, finally, there is a sacrifice that completely and fully atones for sin. He is the ultimate high priest. And then we get to this whole idea of rest. How can sinful man rest in God's holy and beautiful presence? And then we realize that God, or that Jesus is our Sabbath rest, isn't he? He is our ultimate rest. He is where we can ultimately have peace with God. It's through his mediatory work on the cross for us. The tabernacle is an echo of Eden. But Jesus is more than an echo of Eden. Jesus is the promise that Eden will be restored. So this Christmas season, just in conclusion, this Christmas season, we all know that it's about Emmanuel, it's about God with us. That's true. That's wonderful. We often forget that, I think, in the the hustle and bustle of the Christmas season. But that's what Christmas is about. And that's what the tabernacle was reminding God's people about. That as they live their life, they need to center it on the reality that God graciously provides for God's people to dwell in his holy presence. In the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, it's through the sacrificial system and the priests. That was how they were going to do it. But we have a better than, a, better than that copy. That, that's just, just a a forgery of a greater reality in light of Christ where we actually get to be in God's presence and we don't have to fear God. We don't have to go through fear that, 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 that ultimately we're not, we're not going to be good enough. God's beauty is no longer dangerous through the work of Jesus Christ. That's what Christmas is all about. God with us an application of the tabernacle and something I pray for all of us we are reminded of this season. Let's pray. God, um, we, we are so grateful for your presence. And in many ways, Lord, we, we, we are thankful 
that, that, that we can be in your presence through Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, that, that, that not only that, but that you reside in us. You've taken up your home. And so not only are you the ultimate tabernacle, but now we, because of that reality, are a tabernacle. That where do you reign? You reign in the church as she gathers. You reign in our hearts. And so, Lord, we're thankful for that reality. We pray, Lord, that this season, Lord, that, that we would honor and glorify you, that we would be captivated by your beauty. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.